We've been fighting a long time. We have all lost so very much. So many loved ones gone. But you are not alone. There are pockets of resistance all around the planet. We are at the brink. You have no idea how important you are. If you're listening to this, you are the resistance. Welcome everybody, Steve with Such Fidel. I'm coming at you with Ryan Grant and Father mm -hmm. Ripperger, two guys you probably heard of once or twice before on the channel, to talk about Guardians of the Galaxy. Oh, well, I'm sorry, that's a different podcast. Uh, my bad. Back to the thing. Pope Francis issued a motu proprio a couple weeks ago. You may have heard of it. Guardians of Tradition. Father, Ryan, welcome. Good evening, wherever, whenever you are. And uh, how are you all doing? Uh, well, thanks for inviting me. It's, uh, I'm doing good. Uh, busy. Everybody and their uh, dog, we could say, has been asking me what my thoughts are on uh, pretty soon as custodians. So I figured, well, we can talk about it. We're doing fine. I would be doing great, except for the fact that CBS just renewed that little rat Kurtzman to produce more modern Star Trek to completely ruin and desecrate everything that more talented and intelligent people did with the old Trek, and so that soured my mood for about the whole week. I'm just about anything. <laughs> guys, guys, we can't be laughing about it. This is a serious conversation. I know. <laughs> there you go. All right, so Father, tell us what is the, uh, basically what is the gist of this? We're going to go paragraph by paragraph, I think you, is the, the goal, and just go on, talk about the document. Yeah, I mean, I think there's some individual paragraphs. Um, I'll just make some general uh, observations first. Um, the first is about 14 years, 14, 15 years ago, I read an article by Richard McBride of uh, Unhappy Memory. And he had said that all these seminarians coming out of the seminary are much more conservative. They like flat mass. This is not a good thing and something has to be done about it. And it was at that point I began to realize that as time goes on, as these people get closer to um, basically dying, and that their project gets to the point where it's going to start being undone by the younger clergy coming up. The only way they're going to be able to maintain what they've done is by becoming more draconian in their imposition of what has occurred in the last 50 years. And so I, we're just, this document is draconian. I mean, I think that's one of the best ways to actually describe it. Um, even um, from some of the commentaries I've read by neoconservatives and even some of the liberals were scratching their heads saying this was a little heavy handed. Um, and so I'm not a bit surprised by, uh, by any of it. When I was reading through it, uh, t a couple of things kind of stood out. The first is um, much of what I, was, I would say has already been said by most commentators. Um, we'll kind of see this as we go through it, especially the canonical aspect of it or the, or the legal aspect of what it binds and what it doesn't bind. I think too many people overreacted initially. And now, fortunately, some, some of the stuff I've been reading more recently, people are starting to realize it's a little bit more little bit more restricted than it was the, the, than people's initial reaction to it was but um but i think that it uh the thing that kept striking me were two things one is contradiction throughout it which i'll be pointing out there's stuff that's in here that's actually contradictory and then there's um if you understand it properly 
And then there's also, um, uh, in addition to the uh, contradiction, whoever wrote it did not appear to have a really good grasp of two things. One is the actual uh, tradition itself, obviously. But then the other part of it was um, that, you know, back in the day, you know, when I was first ordained 24 years ago, there were a lot of angry traditionalists. And the reason they were angry is because they had been treated so badly by the powers that shouldn't be. And as a result of that, you had these people were basically angry people. And it, it you know, even when I would go into parishes, usually my first homilies when I first started in the place was, we have to have charity. It, charity has to be the foundation of everything because you're going to run people off. You're not going to attract people to the old mass without charity. And people, by and large, would come up to speed. And once they realized that they had a normal parish life, all, most people would settle down. I mean, you always still get the angry trads here and there. But by and large, this is my own impression, and you guys can weigh in on this. My own impression is, is that that whole dynamic has changed. The, there's been such an influx of people into the traditional movement, attending the traditional Latin mass and um, living in, and attending traditional Latin parishes, that the that uh, the dynamic has changed. You know, there used to be a phrase: the solution to pollution is dilution. <laughs> well, this is that's what we got here. There was so many people that's come into this that most of these people didn't come in under that angry the auspices of anger, and that mellowed a lot of stuff out. Even the older trads kind of mellowed out a lot of at least a lot of them that I saw um, in relationship to it. So. I think that the um, the characterization now only applies to just a very few people, and not generally the people uh, attending the traditional Latin mass. Right. You see that? You see that up in your area? For the most part, I attend a fraternity parish. I've worked in society of St. Pius X parishes. I've uh, been to diocesan parishes. Uh, just the general thing is I haven't been to the Nevis Ordo in about 16 years or so. So I, I've seen the gambit of traditional parishes. And one of the things that I noticed when I first got involved with parishes that were exclusively traditional without anybody, without anything else going on there, was that you saw largely the same makeup that you saw in a diocesan parish in terms of in a diocesan parish, you saw people who were just generally just kind of run of the mill with the same everything in the culture just trying to make their way um you have people that are you know super um you know they, they give off the the air as being very holy they're very present at everything and hopefully they are you know you don't know um you have other people that come at they're just weird you, you get this guy that comes up to you about this or that that the weird thing um on, on the right or the left of any particular spectrum in uh, the diocesan parishes for the Novus Ordo that are just weird. And, um, and and then you get people who are more more liberal, as you might call it, uh, at least in terms of where, where it comes into the church, uh, you know, disciplines and politics, what have you. And so in diocesan parishes and fraternity parishes and society parishes, you have largely the same gambit, I found, is you got people who are just weird, frankly. <laughs> then you got other people who are just normal, uh, as in, you know, the normal people you might meet anywhere else that are just trying to make, you know, work out their salvation with fear and trembling, um, doing their best, except because they've had better formation, they, they, they're usually a little more orthodox than you find it in the Novus Ordo, but not through a defect of people in the Novus Ordo. They're just doing whatever. They just need someone to lead them, really, frankly. Um, and then you've got, you know, certain people that seem more to the left 
and that's both in society and in fraternity and in diocesan parishes, as well as the Novus Ordo. So what I generally find is that every single parish you go to is kind of a microcosm of what you find in the culture. In our general culture, people who are kind of like a baseline normal, people who are nuts on one side or the other and, and whatnot. So up here, the only thing that I've seen that kind of disheartens me is that the number of people that want to get you know out of mass as soon as possible, as soon as this document was issued, and complain and make make uh, you know a lot of hay after mass in the foyer or in the donut room or what have you, and uh, not enough people saying you know what? I'm going to spend extra time after mass to make reparation to to the Sacred Heart of Jesus so that you know he'll he'll defend us and that he'll help us in this very difficult situation and that's the one thing that i noticed that i think um kind of unnerved me it's like you know here it is the pope is kind of put out this document that largely mischaracterizes everybody here why aren't we at least you know stopping to spend more time in prayer and instead people want to yak and which is very, in my opinion, anyway, kind of respective of the, the blog culture and, and so many things, everyone wants to yak. But there's obviously a place for blogs and a place for reporting on ecclesial news and all these things. I'm not saying nobody should be doing that. But in general, why isn't your very first instinct to say, hey, you know, ask the priest for a holy hour so we can make reparation for this? Or, well, hey, we got an adoration chapel here. Why don't we go and spend extra time there, 15 minutes at least on Sunday? And or whenever during the week, I'm going to make a plan to do a holy hour during the week to make extra time to make reparation for this. Not a lot of people are doing that. A lot of people instead are taking to the, uh, the social media, to Fedbook and Twitter and all these places to, to whine and you know, complain. Even if the complaints are just, how much prayer are you doing? And there are some people that are certainly going to be caught up in that like, oh, yeah, um, I haven't really done that. I know for myself, yep. I've been late. To, I was late to the party for long uh, to come to the traditional ways, probably about uh, mid last decade, I think it was. Uh, probably a little bit beforehand that I found out what it was because my brother told me, hey, we're having a Latin mass. I had no clue what that was. I thought it was Noah's Ordo, but just a Latin. I, I don't know, no, no clue. And uh, But yeah, and the, the only time I've ever been yelled at really has been at Noah's Ordo Parish. Actually, the one I grew up in. Um, so what I can see what Father's talking about with the uh, the difference in people from then and now, and I think the only time I when I was an usher at Mount Carmel, I only had one quote unquote mad trad, and I kind of most of the time it's been people that were didn't know the history that were upset about things, and then you tell them how bad things were in the past, and yeah, you settled down a little bit, but yeah, the character caricature was not what you see on most Sundays for for sure. Uh, so, so, Father, you have more on the document then. Uh... Yeah, I mean, I it's um, there's a lot of little individual comments, um, uh, which we can, uh, you know, observations which I can make as we go through um, the actual document. So, so uh, do you want me to just start out with it? Yeah, go ahead. Go, uh, go with your first point. Yeah. Okay, so in the first paragraph, he says the guardians of tradition, which, uh, by the way, uh, when Ryan had texted me that custodians is actually, you see it in the Vulgate in reference to the guys that were, um, uh, that when St. Peter was in the uh, in prison, the custodians were the ones standing outside, right? And he gets by, by them because of his angel. Yeah, so they literally came in jailer. So it's kind of interesting that uh, that they would use that term. But, I mean, it is... It, 
and, and actually that's interesting because the word um uh when when they it used to really annoy me when i was younger that they would refer to the uh they were stewards of the mysteries of god you're not a steward a steward is someone who comes and waits on you and brings you your food or whatever the case is a custodian is one who does two things one is he protects what is sacred or protects it when they talk about the um custodians of the mystery of God, of mysteries of God, or the custodians of the elements of sanctification, that really the acoustics is someone who protects it from sacrilege, which, of course, you have to wonder what their view is on that in relationship to uh, letting politicians and stuff get involved in receiving communion, etc. But then the other part of it is, is then, as a custodian, it's not his property. His job is to make sure that it's passed from the one who gave it to him to the one who the one who told him who gave it to him to give it to those to whom they were supposed to give it to. And so intact, without any change. And so it's interesting that they would start this with the word custos without a proper, I don't think a proper theological understanding of it in the sense of they're guardians of the thing, they're supposed to protect it, and they're supposed to pass it on intact, whereas St. Um, Paul says, quad enim, uh, I passed on what is first given to me. So. It's something which you pass it on um, unchanged. And so I think that that's one of the, th the first things that you see. And one of the first things that stood out is that they don't believe that their job is to pass on the tradition intact. doesn't mean that you can't, which we can talk about a little bit later, that uh, minor uh, changes and additions can't be made to the liturgy. But the fact is, is that they don't see themselves as being the ones just to kind of pass the thing on. Um, Anyway, so the guardians of tradition, the bishops in communion with the bishop Rome constitute the visible principle and foundation of unity of their particular churches. Okay, so I just want to say something about this. I don't want to get too bogged down because I could basically make a statement about every line in here. But um, they, one of the things that happened at Vatican II is there was a sleight of hand that occurred in relationship to the principle of unity. So they shifted the principle of unity because Vatican I horribly defined the principle of unity as the papacy. It's right in there. It's a defined statement that the papacy is the principle of unity. So, and then, but the bishops are a principle, not the, but a principle of unity. And so I think trying to lump them all together is um, a, a bit problematic on a theological level because um, you can have a, a situation where you're in a diocese where the bishop is actually uh, for all intents and purposes, a heretic or someone who is erroneous theologically, and you can't be in union with those things. You can be in union with the office, etc. But the point being is, is that um, there was this kind of shift in what constitutes the principle of unity um, in there. And so I think that, uh, and I, I also see realize that he's trying to he's trying to argue. Pope Francis is trying to argue this based on the idea that that the the new mass the old mass is divisive it's you know and then it's fracturing the unity of the church etc but we can talk to that when we get to the word uh unica later so ryan did you have any observations on the first paragraph only in as much as they're laying out this situation and going back right back to your opening comments about what uh, Father Richard McBrien said. And uh, I had a similar thing with my liturgy professor in college where he was really mad that they had allowed the, the traditional mass to be used again. And 
he didn't come out and say it exactly in this way, but it more or less amounted to this, um, that the old mass being present was itself a judgment on the new, and that's how they see it. So in their own mind, uh, the fact that this thing still exists is itself a judgment on them, because really the tradition is the standard of judgment to any healthy, normal thinking person. And so what, what's been received is mediating how we understand the, the thing we're looking at. And so you, you judge the, the newer by the older, just by necessity, just by reality. That's what we do. And you have uh, this thing where you have the, the, the new mass and then you have the old mass. And when I first encountered the old mass, actually, I, I was vaguely aware that before Vatican II mass was in Latin, but I didn't really know much more about it. And I'd only been a Catholic for four years at that point. So I, I was kind of interested, or not even that much, three years. And then a priest who's now, and now he's a priest in the fraternity of St. Peter at the time. He was just a, a student a couple doors down from me. He uh, took me to my first traditional mass. And I was like, wow, that was amazing. And I came back and told my spiritual director all about it. Now, if he had said, oh, yeah, that's great. I, I might not have thought anything of it. I might have been, you know, completely, you know, continued on. Oh, yeah, the, these are all both great. But he was viscerally angry that I had even gone. And he thought this was a mistake. This is bad. And I said, but this is approved by the diocese. Yeah, yeah, yeah it doesn't matter. This is just horrible. And, and it, like, you, you didn't understand what you were looking at. You were mystified. He had this visceral, angry reaction about the thing. And if he hadn't given me that, I might never have looked further into the issue, might never have become more traditional, might never have look, you know, looked to that. But because he was so angry, I said, huh, there's something going on here that I don't quite get. And what's really going on is what uh, Pope Benedict described as the hermeneutic of rupture. And realistically, that's what's in the, in the back of their minds when they see the traditional mass and they get worried about it. And they get worried about the fact that youth are going to it. They're seeing everything they worked for coming to an end because everything they worked for leads you back to this hermeneutic rupture, which they can't, and they can't stomach being challenged, essentially. So that they've got to keep supporting that. Whether or not you can have a hermeneutic continuity, you know, again, I leave to other people. I'm not going to get into that. But it's clear that at least those who are advising the Holy Father in this matter, uh, if not the Holy Father himself, have this notion of the hermeneutic of rupture, that this is a whole new thing. And anything that smacks of the old is a threat to everything they support. Then that's what comes across to me in these first few paragraphs. Yeah, I think that's I think that's generally true. Um, you know, I, the, if when you get to the second paragraph, there's an interesting uh, phrase. It says, in order to support the concord and unity of the church, and he goes on. He says, my venerable predecessors, St. John Paul II and Benedict XVI, granted and regulated the faculty, I want to talk about that word faculty, to use the Roman Missal edited by Pi John the Twenty Third in uh, 1962. Um, so, and then of course they make the statement in this way, they intended to facilitate the ecclesial community of those Catholics feel attached to some earlier churchical forms and not to others. That, I think that's true of the initial indult. And it, I think it is true somewhat in relationship to Benedict and some more pontificum, but I don't think that that was the primary reason that Benedict the 16th actually put it out. It, my understanding is, is that John Paul II had actually had a commission that was started to take a look to see if the traditional mass had ever been abrogated. And they basically came back and said, no. Now, uh, Ratzinger, who became Benedict XVI, was actually one of the people on that committee. And so they recognized that it hadn't been abrogated. But the word faculty is a very 
key word because it basically in it gives the impression that the ability to use the ritual is based upon them granting the priest not something that he has by right of being a priest but something that's above and beyond that because that's usually what you get when you get faculty so you can have the power of the priesthood but you have to receive faculties to your confessions for example and so the word faculty has a very uh it, it's basically something which um it it's basically determination of permission in a certain sense so i've always found it interesting that um john paul ii in ordinatio sacerdotalis actually says that god did not give the faculty to the church to ordain women now that pre that brings up a whole series of questions theologically about whether they can be even ordained or not whether the proper matter etc but that faculty is the same kind of a use of that word in the sense that it's a kind of a permission that's actually granted in a certain sense um, or a power that in addition to that that's been granted like for example when you receive faculties to um confirm and things of that sort but it brings up a very interesting point historically and that is this um before the second vatican council i've only come across a glimpse of it in um in, in discussions that were just kind of referenced to but it would have been something that benedict would have been aware of and that is that the um the uh the actual uh that a priest there, there's that there's a right that a priest has and by that i, I use the word r-i-g-h-t in relationship to the right r-i-t-e mm -hmm. so in other words before the second vatican council there was some initial discussions in just observing the tradition of the church in recognizing that when a priest is ordained into a specific right r-i-t-e he actually has a right r-i-g-h-t to say the mass that has organically developed from the time of the apostles in other words the apostles started a particular each apostle started a particular ritual we can trace back um except for the novus ordo mass which i'll mention here in a bit when we get to another paragraph but you all of the rites except for the new rite can be traced back to an apostle and when you're ordained into that rite, it's that particular form of the liturgy that gives you the the right to say or r-i-g-h-t that rite r-i-t-e that stemmed from that apostle so there's a a lineage it's very similar to um, or it's kind of connected or analogous to um, bishops. When a bishop is consecrated, he's actually given a document from the Vatican that indicates which apostle that he stems from in the in the lineage of apostolicity so that he has he knows that he actually um, is connected to this particular apostle. The same thing is very similar in relationship to a rite, uh, R-I-T-E. So basically what that means is, is that the apostles started a rite each um the various individual rights and then they um as they organically develop the priests have the right to say that because it basically is something that comes from that particular apostle in the specific right that they're in this is one of the reasons why in order for for me like i don't have a right r-i-t-e to go and say a uh, like an eastern right r-i-t-e unless those rights are granted to me in addition to the one that i already have by virtue of my ordination into this specific right r-i-t-e so this is something that i think is is interesting is that they're they're setting up um the priests of, um whether he can actually say a particular mass or a r-i-t-e a rite of mass is based upon whether they concede he can, can actually say that right or not and that's not necessarily the case so and by the way there's this is not what theological note is it's a speculation at this point it was something that they just started discussing 
before Vatican II, but Benedict, I, 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 from what I can gather, Benedict was aware of this, and that's one of the reasons why he did, he just basically let Sumorum Pontificum stand as it was, where the priest could just say this right, because that's the one that we actually extends back to the right of the apostles. That's the right that extends back to the apostles, and so he just kind of left it at that. And I think that's a theological thing that was working around in the background. Ryan? I mean, again, that's a hard act to follow. Um, but ultimately, there's a, there's a little bit of... Um, so when the Holy Father says, uh, you know, that, that the purpose of allowing the 1962 Missal or the traditional Latin Mass or the extraordinary form or whatever you want to call it, um, you know, he says that, um, you know, my venerable predecessor, St. John Paul II and Benedict XVI granted and regulated the faculty of the Roman Missal um, to, quote, facilitate the ecclesial communion of those Catholics who feel attached to some earlier forms and not to others. And then he adds in the next paragraph, so maybe we're leading to the next thing. In right. line with the initiative of my venerable predecessor, Benedict XVI, to invite the bishops to assess the application of the the Samorum Pontificum, three years after its publication, et cetera. Um, you know, we carried out this detailed consultation of bishops and the results have been considered, et cetera, you know, whatnot. Um, Benedict XVI, by his own admission in both Samorum Pontificum and his accompanying letter to bishops, did not issue it for the sake of, you know, the, this kind of whatever notion of unity in the church or concord right. or whatever. He did it because it was right for the priest to be able to say the mass of tradition. And he, he adds uh, what was sacred for our predecessors is sacred also. And this echoes what he said in his 1981 book, Feast of Faith, where he says it really calls into question the nature of the church if what was previously sacred for all of our fathers and predecessors is suddenly forbidden. This, this calls the whole nature of the church itself into question. And, and that's more of what he was getting at than the question of some, some because if you want unity, you will, all right, we've already got these ecclesial organizations. We've already got these religious orders that are offering exclusively the traditional mass. And bishops in that time, in 2007, hadn't sufficiently put it out there. And he felt there was a right, R-I-G-H-T, that hadn't been properly implemented in the life of the church, not even just for the faithful, but for the priest himself. And this is one of those things. It's not just those dastardly trads who just won't go along for everything. Oh, we got to take some priest away from his duties to service them, which itself tells you something about their mindset. You know, we'll be pastoral to everybody in the world except the trads. And you wonder why there's this angst amongst trads, right? But um, beside that, this is something that is a right of the priest himself to be right. able to Day, because this is sacred and from the tradition this is what are all predecessors you know called sacred and what does that say about us if a priest cannot say the same mass that saint robert bellarmine said that saint philip neary said that uh saint charles borromeo said that i mean just go on down the line of all these great saints that said that you know the mass the traditional mass we're not talking about this one little use here, this one little thing here, like some little custom in some local church. We're talking about the universal rite of mass that that all these saints said, and even before Trent, uh, that St. John Capistrano said, 
that, um, you know, going back that St. Francis, the same liturgy, he's exhorting bishops to say with dignity and to not allow the sacred vestments to be eaten up by moths and, and be in tatters when they say mass because it's an offense to our Lord. That's the same liturgy St. Francis is talking about that we have now, right, in, right. in the 1962 Missal. And so, and this is what Benedict is getting at, is what was sacred for our predecessors is sacred for us too. It wasn't for some anomalous notion of unity, which the um, the purveyors of liturgical destruction, the purveyors of the hermeneutic of rupture, who seem to be advising the Holy Father, these are the ones that come out, you know, and, you know, they have no interest in what the, the mass of the saints said. They want to get back to the 60s and 70s. That, that's the, that's what kind of screams to me in this particular paragraph. The unity they want is not a unity that's beneficial to the church. It's not what Vatican II talks about in Sacrosanto Concilium and says no innovation should happen unless it's for the legitimate good of the church. Um, it's not based on anything that, that that's truly unifying in terms of our faith. It's unifying in terms of their limited conception of what liturgy should be, which is based on what they did in the 70s. Yeah, I, I think uh, I think Ryan is actually that's that's a good point because when I um, in fact when I first found out that the uh, that that um, kind of study was kind of sent out to the various bishops, the impression I got from uh, that Benedict was doing it is precisely that that he thought that bishops were being too restrictive. They wanted to, he wanted to get a general sense of how things were actually going. Um, and I also that paragraph that you just read, Ryan, I find interesting too because um, to invite the bishops to assess the application of the motor progress and for three years, the results have been carefully considered. Um, and I don't, I don't want this to come off like I'm questioning the honesty and the authenticity of the Holy Father. But the fact of the matter is, is that, we, that, that we don't have the statistics. Who are the ones that were complaining about it? Were they, were it the, were the, the certain bishops who ha always had an axe to grind against the old brass to begin with? Um, you know, I, in my experience, um, uh, you know, in even among the, the liberal bishops, ironically, a lot of times the liberal bishops actually liked uh, the traditional Latin mass being said because it solved problems for them because people would complain. They say, well, here, go over here. And, and then they, they didn't have to listen to it anymore. So some of the, some of the, even the liberal bishops actually liked it. Um, the conservative bishops, you know, they didn't have any problem with it. So, but there was, I think it was the impression I always had historically is that this was a select few people who really had an axe to grind. Now, the, the, I might say that the liberal bishops didn't like the general tendency that it was taken, but I didn't get the impression that um, that they would be willing to go to this kind of a length to just shut the thing down, but I could be wrong in that. But I, but, uh, but we basically, I would like to see this, actually see the statistics, the actual data from the study that was done to see, you know, what was the demographic of those who didn't like it and those who did. And we don't hear anything positive either. There had to have been numerous bishops who put in and said, this has been, turned out to be very good for my diocese. It's done this, it's done that, etc." But we didn't hear any of that. So the next paragraph, at this time, having considered the wishes expressed by the Episcopate and having heard the opinion of the uh, CDF, I now desire with this apostolic letter to press on ever more in the constant search for ecclesiastical communion. Therefore, I have considered it appropriate to establish the following. He gets into some points there. Yeah, I mean, it, obviously, it's again, it's back to he's uh, trying to hang the reason why he's doing all this on. Um, I mean, the implication is, is that the traditional movement or, the, or, or at least the fact that the traditional mass is being said is essentially divisive. That's that's the implication that's there, or at least what 
appears to be implied. Um, this first article, the, uh, the liturgical books promulgated by St. Paul VI and St. John Paul II in conformity with the decrees of Vatican II. Uh, now, I'm going to read the original translation, and then we'll go to what we found out later is the actual uh, original Italian, if I'm not mistaken. You can correct me on that. Um, or the unique expression of Alexorandi of the Roman Rite. When I read that, I said, actually, that statement is true in this, in this sense in the sense that there is no other ritual in the church that can that has no pedigree it's unique there is no all the other rituals can at least trace themselves back to the apostle in some sense this is the only one that can't do that and so because it's literally kind of created out of nowhere now they they try and imply later in the document that basically that um well it has the the first eucharistic canon yeah okay here we have a particular problem, and this is actually one of the reasons why I was um, a little concerned about Benedict referring to the Mass in, as the, extor uh, the extraordinary form in the traditional Latin Mass and the ordinary form as the new Mass. And the reason being is, is because he, he basically it was that they're the same rite, R-I-T-E, um, just different forms. That's actually not true because Benedict knew, because he, he studied liturgy beforehand, and before the Second Vatican Council, it was common knowledge that a ritual is constituted by three things, the offertory, the canon, and then the communion of the priest. So those three things, the rituals of those, constituted the specific rite. So let me give you an example. So the Carmelite rite says the same canon that we do in the Roman rite, except their offertory is different. And for that reason, it's a different rite, R-I-T-E. Mm -hmm. So this is a, it's a different rite. And so what I, but I did say that Benedict can legitimately say that they are that they're both part of the Roman rite, um, in the sense of, or the Western rite in that sense, and so they're distinguished from the Eastern rites. But they're not. Uh, but you can't say they're the same rite as far as the actual liturgical thing goes. So, but I did find that kind of interesting. It's the unique expression. So I don't think you can actually say that they're the same rite. But then we find out later that the actual word is unica, if I'm not mistaken. Is that correct? Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's. So, I'm looking at the Italian right now. So let me, if you you, you will, uh, I'll read yes. it. Um, <clears throat> let's see. I libri liturgici promulgati dai pontefici Paolo VI e Giovanni Paolo II in conformità ai decreti del Concilio Vaticano II sono l'unica espressione dell'exorandi del rito romano. So the now that word lunica, the soul is what the Italian right. says. Now unique is an English term sure. that it's it's a false friend in Italian, right? Uh, because it's it's mitigated by the French understanding in the 15th century. So when you get to lunica, the soul is what that that word unica, just like in Latin. So in Italian also, it mean it can mean the the only, and actually in Italian more so than Latin, it means the only, and that's the way that phrase is used. In anywhere you whether you're going from Dante to a modern parliamentary document in Italian, right. it means the only expression of the. Now this is this is where actually the more curious part, um, the only expression of the Lex Orandi of the Roman Rite. So why why are they using this term Lex Orandi in the way they're using it? Because Lex Orandi, as everyone should know, is familiar with liturgical issues in the church. That phrase is drawn from a, a maxim that goes back to the 8th century or so. Lex orandi, lex credendi. The law of praying, literally, is the law of believing. 
right? And so we're in English, we, we turn those into nouns. The law of prayer is the law of belief. So that, you know, and it's a maxim that basically suggests the, the way in which we pray determines how we're going to believe. In other words, liturgy has to be uh, authentic. It has to be, um, you know, it has to express the true doctrine that we believe. It all has to be completely consistent with each other like hand in glove. So if you change the liturgical books of the people, as Dom Geringer comments on uh, what they did in England with the, uh, the Protestant Reformation there, they changed the books, and then you get the Book of Common Prayer because they needed to change the liturgy in order to change the belief. And that was the problem. So, you know, the, the use of the phrase lex orandi to describe a rite or describe a missile, that, that's entirely novel. The way they're using that phrase here doesn't match up with how the authors through the tradition, or even following Vatican II, use that phrase. So it's kind of curious the way they use that, but nevertheless, just judging that by meaning the, the law of prayer as in the, uh, appropriating that term to mean this is what you're going to do. Sono l'unica espressione del orandi del rito romano. That they are, that is the books of Paul II and John Paul II, um, in conformity with Vatican II, they got to add that. They are the sole expression of the Roman rite. So it is uh, completely uh, disintegrating that language that Benedict XVI had come up with of the ordinary and the extraordinary form. Now, on the one hand, um, that's problematic because of the legal status in terms of uh, celebrating the, the traditional Roman rite. Um, you know, it actually creates 10 times more of the questions than that it actually solves because Benedict XVI expressed clearly in his Motu Proprio Sumorum Pontificum that the traditional mass and by extension, um, you know, St. Pius V's document, Quo Primum, had never actually been abrogated. Right. which means that every priest retains the right to say that mass. And now you have uh, in, in our, our current Holy Father's motu proprio um, that, all right, just as the new mass, the Novus Ordo, if you will, uh, the books published by, promulgated by Paul VI and John Paul II, these are the sole expression of the Roman rite. Um, it doesn't say anything about the traditional right. It doesn't say anything about its rights. It doesn't say anything about whether it was abrogated. It's not a formal abrogation. So what is it? It's basically saying what I take it to is what some of the people that worked on the concilium with Bunini and others following Vatican II. Uh, and if you want more on that, there's Bunini's own memoirs, uh, his book, Reform of Liturgy. What is it, 1963 to 1973 or something like that? I forget the years he puts on that. Or uh, again, Louis Bouillet's memoirs, and Louis Bouillet, who of course was a ma major member of that, and also dismayed about a lot of what was going on. Bunini tells all the the bad and the ugly because he thinks it's good. Um, but you know how they. And so one of the consultors that worked on the concilium with Bunini is this uh, French Jesuit, Jose uh, Guilnel. He comes out and says the Roman rite has been destroyed; it no longer exists. And he's referring to the traditional Latin mass because they've come up with something new that they meant to replace it and put it out of existence. And so this particular article, Article 1, that I just read in the Italian, and when he said, when they say it's la unica espressione, when they say it is the sole expression, like the English says the unique, it is the sole expression of the Roman rite. What they're saying, they're trying to recall that from the concilium that the older rite no longer exists 
it's not there. And then when we combine that with the accompanying letter to bishops, which I think is actually pretty interesting, um, when he goes through, um, I just quote a portion of it. Um, so it's the last part of the Italian original. Um, where would we start with that? So, but basically where he's saying that um, the indications on how to proceed in the dioceses are chiefly dictated by two principles. On the one hand, to provide for the good of those who are rooted in the previous form of celebration, and, and this is the Italian, e hanno bisogno di tempo per ritornare, and need time to return to the Roman right. Al retto romano promagato da e santo palo sesso e Giovanni Paolo secondo. They need time to return to the Roman rite. That is what has been decided as the unico, the sole Roman rite, unica, sorry, unica, sole Roman rite promulgated by Paul VI and John Paul II. So you take that paragraph from the accompanying letter to bishops and put it together with Article One. What it's essentially saying is, this is the Roman rite, get with it. That's basically what it's saying, you know, is that you're going to transition to this and you're not going to have anything else. Yeah, I find it kind of interesting that basically it does away with that extraordinary ordinary form distinction. Because there's only one form now, ultimately. Right. And the uh, the the other side of it is too is, is the there's this intention. It's it's kind of interesting because I thought to myself some time ago that it would you know if they if they ever wanted to transition out the old right or the new right, sorry. The way you do it is you just tell all the seminarians coming through, none of you are going to get to say the new mass. You'll all be saying the old mass. Well, ironically, that's exactly what he ends up doing here. But I think that the, um, uh, and the other thing is too, is, is that de facto, the fact that he even is allowing it to continue, the old right, to continue in any way whatsoever is an indication that it's not the sole expression of Lex Orandi. Yeah. This is another, so this is, this, so the, the very statement by virtue of the, the document allowing it is contradicting this very statement. Because if he says, this is the only way it can be done, well, then he should have just done away with it altogether, which I'm glad he didn't, obviously. Right. But but that that that's that's the reality of the, of the, that's why I said when I was reading through this, there were so many contradictions that kind of kept coming up, you know, if a person analyzes it in a, at a certain depth. I'll give him any ideas in case I get an editor. <laughs> there you, <laughs> you know, Article 2, I think it's, I mean, some of these. So it belongs to the diocesan bishop. So it's literally a case of giving a, giving with his right hand and then taking away with his left, or left and right, depending on how you want to look at it. It belongs to the diocesan bishop as moderator, promoter, and guardian of the whole liturgical life of the particular church entrusted to him to regulate the liturgical celebrations of his diocese. Therefore, it is his exclusive competence to authorize the use of the 1962 missile in his diocese according to the guidelines of the apostolic see. Okay, well that last sentence negated the whole first part of the paragraph because he's obviously not the exclusive competence to authorize the use of this because um, as we know from this document, he basically says, hey, it's the, the bishops, it's their place to regulate the, 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 the liturgy. And then he turns right around and says, but you can't regulate this stuff. So I'm not gonna let you regulate it ultimately. And so it's you're going to have to follow what I what basically what I say in this. And so it, it, again, it's another one of those contradictions, you know, because I I was mentioning this to a bishop recently. I said, well, he says that the bishop it's his place to regulate it, but then he turns right around and says, no, you can't allow it whenever you want. You just have to do it when I tell you to do it. 
So it's a it's a different it's again it's another one of those contradictions I think. The other thing is too is is that um, so basically, it really boils down to um, that he is basically he is inverted as as this has already been pointed out in some of the other podcasts of other people he's inverted the process in the past um, the bishop actually under some more pontificate could actually promote it and actually allow the priest to do it under this under this new document he only has the right to restrict it he doesn't have the right to promote it so there's a it, it's literally a flipping on the a, a backwards of some pontificum in that regard Kind of funny, the Archbishop Corleone is now actually added a new mass, new traditional mass on his calendar. Well, actually, yeah. that's one of the interesting things about, um, there's various theories as to why the Holy Father came out so quickly with such a, doc a document that has been described by both friends and enemies of the traditional mass as draconian, as uh, without mercy. Uh, you have Robert Royal over at the Catholic Thing, who was on EWTN last week, I think it was last week or the week before, describing that, you know, as, as another evidence of the what he called the schizophrenia of this papacy, that we talk so much about mercy and accompanying, and but then anyone the Holy Father doesn't like, there's no mercy, there's no accompaniment, there's no, there's no help you're going to get with it or get lost, which is absolutely the contrary of what he's saying in all these other contexts. You know, there's, there's plenty of mercy for everybody under the sun, except for traditionalists, who he describes as rigid. And in, 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 in a departing and uh, quoting from Robert Royal, lest anyone thinks I'm, I'm confusing what he said with uh, this, um, it's almost like throwing these childlike tantrums, frankly, uh, when there's too many young people going to traditional orders and he doesn't like these orders. And so he just goes on about rigidity and all these things and, you know, without expressing a specific thing. But instead, just give him this general thing that's bad, that's evil. And he's almost talking about it in terms of basically throwing a tantrum, really. It's not mature. It's not not manly. It's not not yet the guy is a 90-year-old man or 80-year-old man or something like that. But uh, the, the way in which he expresses himself isn't particularly mature there. And there is, um, I guess, getting back to the document, beside that where, you know, he's, he's given the bishop one thing and he's cutting it on the other, they're laying down these various norms. And so you have Article 3, uh, which, which follows um, you know, what we just read. The bishop of the diocese in which until now there exists one or more groups that celebrate according to the Missal antecedent to the reform of 1970. So, um, you know, I'm not sure why they went with that very literal, again, false friend, antecedente, basically preceding the reform of the 1970. Um, one, I'm going to stop there. So that certain groups um not uh not eschewing and not denying the validity of validita and the legitimia legitima the legitimacy now this is a tricky one here too yeah. so validity is one thing and i don't know even the society of Pius X does not deny the validity of the novus ordo mass if you want to go that far right and yet in and they have this extra word legitimacy which again in italian doesn't exactly mean what it means in english legitimità uh, is 
not not merely just a question of its being legally right and therefore legitimate, but also like morally right, good. So you can't criticize it in any way, shape, or form is essentially what that word is, what is coming down with it, because it says it, um, non escudando la validità e la legitimità you, uh, della reforma liturgica you can't even question is what it's really coming out to that, that Italian really comes out to in English is you can't question the validity which I don't know anyone who does or the legitimacy the goodness the, the essential rightness of that reform and that's been the big you know, thing with liturgical scholars even Bouyer who was on the commission which produced that liturgical reform, questioned the legitimità of so much of what was going on in that reform. And he relates in his memoirs, and nobody has come forward to contradict it, that Paul VI said, well, why are you guys doing all this stuff anyway? And he said, well, Bunini said you wanted it. And he said, well, no, I didn't. There's a major historical lacuna getting onto the, you know, the, the so many things they put into the new rite on the basis of, well, they did this in the early church. But then you get down to that research and you find out they didn't do anything close to that in the early church. It's like there was some notion of this thing that happened and they reinvented according to a 1970s imagination of what this must have looked like and inserted it in the Novus Ordo. I mean, your classic example, the presentation of the gifts, uh, so-called. Do Let's go grab these individual laymen from the, the congregation somewhere and mar try to march them out back and march them up through the, the sanctuary to go present these hosts that they didn't make in this wine, which they didn't produce, to the priest in order to, in, to consecrate into the Blessed Sacrament. It's like, that's not what happened in the early church. In the early church, people made their own altar breads and presented them to the subdeacon, which they conveniently got rid of. In the 60s. Brian, are you so, telling me On Eagle's Wings was not played in the year 150? Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah it, it's actually like the original. You, you've seen that meme about the original King James Bible, right? Pastor Jim buried the original King James Bible in the 4th century in English, which nobody spoke at the time, in order to be discovered <laughs> conveniently in 1601 or 1611 or whatever. It's like, which is a joke. It's a parody thing. To, to make ridiculousness of the, the King James only version uh, Protestants, right? They, they insist this is the only Bible you can ever use, even if you don't speak English. Um, it, it's a similar thing with in terms of liturgical. It, it, it falls under the condemnation that Pius XII gives of archaeologism for the very same reasons that he lays down in Mediatra Day, namely that, you know, people bring up this and that was done in the early church based on this or that, you know, view of things in the, you know, and we should cannot just constantly change our liturgy based on what some scholar comes up with of, uh, well, this was done then, so we have to do it now. But that's essentially what everything in the new right does. It follows archaeologists, right, in, in, in terms of uh, the, well, this was done in the early church, and that's its justification. Or this was done in the Byzantine right. And then, you know, again, not part of our right, perfectly good in their right, not part of our right. And they import it in in ways that is not done in their right, and then say, "Yeah, it's great," you know, and, and what it's not actually. And so, like I said, with this presentation of the gifts, people made their own altar breads. They presented it at the subdeacon. They're very small little, you know, pieces of bread that they then would consume. And that's what the presentation of the gifts was. If you were going to communicate, you brought your own altar bread. And um, shortly after the time of Saint Gregory the Great, there's a it related a woman who laughed because she'd made a particular mark 
uh, Fortescue relates this in his uh, work, the, his, uh, the, um, the, the, the Roman liturgy study of the, the mass of the Roman rite, his history rather than his, his study of the ceremonies, where he you know, notes this that from an ancient manuscript that a woman had laughed because she'd made a marking on the bread, and then that, that bread was being you know, presented to her to receive. And at a certain point, it fell away because it wasn't practical, and it was replaced by the offer, the offertory you know, contributions, where people, and of course, in those days too, in the Middle Ages, you gave crops, you gave your the produce of your fields and whatnot for the support of the church, because you didn't always have specie, gold, and silver, and that, and that's where passing around the collection basket comes from. Is when they got rid of uh, you just had altar societies or nuns or whatever that baked bread. Now that uh, it is is replaced out, right? And so ignoring all of that in that development, they just oh well, let's just have some random guy from the congregation go bring this up, and it has no propriety in terms of the development of the Roman right. It's this novelty intruded in. It's not even what was done in ancient times, but according to this document, to say that is to show a disunifying and schismatic mentality, even though you're merely just talking about the historical reality of the situation. They were confused on what BYOB meant. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, there's that, it's kind of interesting that the, um, that, uh, you know, there's this whole question the legitimacy of the thing. You know, I, 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 I don't live in a vacuum, obviously, and I don't think neither do you guys. There is nothing that the church says. There's nothing that the Pope ever does. There's nothing that any bishop ever does that isn't open, to, that people don't open to question somehow. So, I mean, the best thing that they should have done, I mean, and even the goodness of it. I mean, even when stuff that is put out, some that at least on the appearance seems good, people say, well, wait a minute, it could lead to this and this. So, I mean, if, if the idea is to try and shut down on some of the discussion, I um, at least the Italians might get it, but I, the Americans aren't going to get it. Uh, paragraph two is it is to designate one or more locations where the faithful adherents of these groups may gather for the Eucharistic celebration, not however in the parochial churches and without the erection of new personal parishes. So when I read this, I wrote I wrote on the edge, I wrote peripheries. I guess we're all kicked to the peripheries now. <laughs> right. So this is uh you know, and I it's um uh, you know, if the if the Pope, I think, was consistent in, in at least the way that he talks, he would have at least sat down with the traditionalists and just say, hey, look, I don't agree with you. I want to get you over here. Can we at least talk? I mean, there's no uh, visiting the smelling sheep, so to speak. So I, I think it would have been that they and I think this is one of the lines that comes across as draconian, that they're literally just like, no, you can't even have this in a parish church. You can't even say mass in a parish church. Well, this actually brings up a particular issue because um, how many locations are there in any given diocese? I mean, some dioceses would have all sorts of locations, uh, you know, some of the larger dioceses, but some of the smaller dioceses, their ecclesiastical property is rather meager. And so there's, there's not going to be a lot of places that this can be suitably done. So, you know, this kind of creates, I think, a difficulty, at least just on a basic elementary level on, on, in that regard. I remember I people going, are we going to be in a church or the field? <laughs> right. Yeah. I think it's baked in by intention. It's like a heads I win, tails you lose type of thing. It's like, or you can celebrate this mess on February 30th when the planets align type of thing. Right, yeah. You know, it's like, yeah, you can have it. But I mean, because in Europe, I mean, you have a few more, especially in larger cities, places that are 
um, you know, whether they're de designated as chapels, oratories, and all these things in the United States, in Latin America, in um, other places, you don't have nearly as many of those types of institutions. Uh, you mostly have parishes, parochial churches, as, as the Italian right. puts it, um, you know, so chiese parochiali, which again is mediated just by the Latin of a parochus and a parochialis, where it, it's basically a designated parish. And, you know, and some of that's even mitigated by civil law following the Napoleonic Code, where because of the state owns so much of the church. And... Yeah, you know, what it actually brings me back to is things like back in the '70s when the the Society of Pius X took over um, a church in Paris. Just took it over after mass. They came in praying the rosary and they just filled the whole church. And they blocked it off, and then the priests were in there saying mass. And they, uh, you know, the the but the bishop called the cops. The cops said, "There's Catholics in there praying mass. What do you want us to do?" By civil code. That's a parish church, and there's Catholics in there saying mass, and what do you want us to do about it? And they didn't, and they still maintain that church to that day, actually. The diocese just had to give it up. Um, and so that, and that's kind of a local situation, but if now you put it in a law, you can't say that mass, mass in a parochial church. The civil code can now get in order and saying, okay, well, that's actually forbidden by the, you know, the religion, by, by the church, and we're supposed to honor what they're putting out there. So I don't know, maybe it has more to do with that in, in that context to, to kind of mediate against that in the future. But I think, you know, that that's maybe only a, like a side note. Uh, I mean, it probably has more to do with in most places, this is going to inhibit the ability of priests and faithful to have the mass because there simply is no church that's an oratory or that's not an actual parish church. Yeah, I think that part of it is too is, is that this also gives the bishops plausible um, excuse not to allow the mass. Well, right. I can't find any place for you to say the mass, you know. And so this is—I think—that's one of the one of the things that a lot of the bishops can actually uh, use this as an excuse, right? And you know, without erect, the erection of new personal parishes, what's interesting about that is is that's almost a shot across the bow to the traditional religious orders because, mm -hmm. other than very small there I, I think i only know of two or three in the entire united states although my, my knowledge on that i admit is limited where it's a traditional parish and it's a traditional personal parish and there is a diocesan priest running it those are extremely rare they're almost all run by the paternity the icks or um uh you know etc variety so there's you know those um traditional religious orders and so basically it's when I watch this, basically, this is a question that the fraternity is going to read, which I'm still incarnated in, even though I am um, uh, have exclaustration. That, that this is a real question about their growth. This is essentially shutting down the growth, even of the um, traditional uh, religious orders in their expansion and taking on new apostolates. Because the, um, many of the, uh, the fraternity is something I guess it's going to have to sit down and, you know, the council is going to have to figure out what it, what it wants to do and the superior general can make a decision but you know are they going to take on a new apostolate that has no parish associated with it mm -hmm. so so you need in effect this is curtailing the traditional religious orders um expansion into new apostolates right at least like, long term and it also like creates side. another issue in terms of what about the dominican right what about the carmelite no. 
What about the Anglican ordinaria? That's actually a bigger one, at least in terms of some people's mind, who are served by the Anglican ordinariate, where they do a you know, a mass that's been approved that is a mix of the Book of Common Prayer and the traditional mass in English. And, and unless I'm mistaken, if there's anyone that, that knows better, you know, feel free to correct me. That, that's what it was explained to me by someone. But, um, you know, they're not doing the Novus Ordo in the Anglican Ordinariate. So um, where are they? And it's not explained in the document, which, of course, is going to then lead you to New Dubia, where, which gives them the excuse to come down with more draconian things, which is why I always tell people, um, work it out with your bishop, keep doing what you're doing, don't ask Dubia. Don't send in questions, because right. that's just going to give all the excuse for them to come back and come in with more draconian stuff. Oh, yeah, we didn't realize that. We, now we can really restrict it, which is exactly what they want to do. Right. Yeah. And that's in fact, that was my one of my very concerns about this document because of the lack of clarity in certain parts of it. Inevitably, bishops are going to start writing and, and all it's going to do is tighten everything up. And as right. you know, Ryan, and I'm sure Steve's heard this, you never send a petitio or a dubia to Rome for which you don't already know the answer. Mm-hmm. Because if you don't know the answer, you don't know what you're going to get. <laughs> right. So uh, so this is one of the reasons why, you know, it's 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 a bit disconcerting because of the fact that a lot of the bishops have said, well, a lot of this stuff is unclear. Well, the more clarification comes out, the more restrictive I think it's going to get. Yeah, almost um, like a don't ask, don't tell thing. Yeah, exactly. You know, paragraph three, to establish at the designated location the days on which Eucharistic celebrations are permitted using the Roman missile promulgated by John Paul or John the 23rd in 1962. So the bishops are also given even the ability to restrict the days in which it's said. So, and you know, so there's more and more restrictions that the bishops are going to be able to have. Tuesday when the planets align. Yes. Yeah. That's what your reference I think was apt. In these celebrations, the readings are proclaimed in the vernacular language using translations of the sacred scripture proved for liturgical use by the respective Episcopal conferences. I was happy to see when I first read that, I said, well, then you just do what we've always done. You do it in Latin, and then you come down and you read it in English. But there's there's a couple of things, I think, in here that needs to be addressed. The first is someone has, I can't remember who actually rightly pointed it out because I've read so much stuff on this, is, well, you know, there's not a whole lot of approved translations in relationship to this thing. In fact, I, I think I've only seen one English um, epistolary which was uh, available. Um, I, think, I take that back. I think there's two that were available, but those things are like hands to you. Your, I mean, I managed to find a copy, but to get an actual copy of that is extraordinarily difficult. Now, you might be able to, and this is the point, approved for liturgical use, use, mm-hmm. not use. just for some layman reading reading his hand missile in a pew. So you can't even use hand missiles technically because it's limited to the rsv and the nab at that point because point. in 1983 yes. when they put that out there they 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 declared that anything prior whether it was the confraternity edition of the dewey reams or the reams or and knox bible whatever else it was all you know that was all for private use but only these things the nab and the rsv are approved for liturgical use right yeah and i think another aspect of this particular paragraph which um, every time I see this kind of discussion, you even see it in Vatican II and post-Vatican II documents, is this business of, you know, doing the readings so that the people can actually understand them. And there was this whole theology that cropped up that said that the readings were actually there for the education of the people, for the edification and education of the people, right? So they're there to inform them so that they can get the Lord of the Gospels, et cetera. 
that's not the primary reason they're there. It's true that that's a secondary effect of reading the epistles because they re and the gospels because you read it and you learn from it, but that's not the primary reason. The primary reason, and this is why it was actually um, in low mass, it's done at the altar, at the high mass, the epistles done facing the altar, is a sign that this was a sacrifice of praise. It's a sacrificial thing in which God has given us this good thing, and you actually are giving it back to him, and also as a petitio, you know, like reminding him of his promises, etc. but it's given to him, so it's actually a sacrifice of praise. That, and then it was, of course, then the Gospels were done facing north to indicate the um, uh, conversion of the barbarians. But the point being is, is that, that the primary aspect of this is, that, and this is the whole thing, the Mass, from the, the Old Mass especially, has this element to it. From the beginning to the end is a sacrifice. It's different elements. Obviously, there's a sacrifice of praise, which they call now the Liturgy of the Word, but then the actual Liturgy of the Eucharist, which is actually the canon on, that or the offertory on that's the actual the sacrifice of the christ occurs of course but they're both sacrifices and this is an this is one of the things i think that is misunderstood that the the readings are not done primarily for the uh, edification of the people they're actually done as a sacrifice back to god i'm happy that it actually edifies the people it's a good thing people should i you know i always encourage people to read along for the, the readings etc but that doesn't mean that that's their primary uh, end and I think that's one of the things that's kind of behind this whole thing is that we have to do it in English so that people understand it. No, actually, in the end, the only one who needs to understand it is God, and because then we'll get the graces we need to receive that. Now, don't get me wrong, I'm all for people reading along in the Mass, paying attention to the parts of the Mass, and reading along with the priest and unifying themselves uh, in union with the sacrifice of the priest to the degree that they're capable of, but that doesn't mean that that's the primary goal is to uh, for the people to understand what is said and people could also take the discipline to actually read it before you get the mass and maybe right. learn it because when you hear that eh, today, today's pharisee verse and publicly and i understand where he's going with that i read that part like dom garanger yeah the only thing that this kind of complicates a little bit is um uh is that it <laughs> excuse me bless you but the, the only thing the only thing that this kind of complicates is daily mass because unless you're doing a homily you virtually never did a daily mass you i mean i've been a pastor in a parish and you would commonly read them at the uh at and the sunday masses um or holy days of obligation etc before you'd preach um but uh but so that's the only thing that's going to kind of add but the uh the other part of it um that kind of uh concerns me in relationship to that is that the uh that there is kind of a mindset that um the uh trying to figure out how to formulate it it's uh i'll tell you what i'm going to return to it because i think it's something that would be better suited in one of these other cases but it's another aspect to to this oh that's what it was okay so it basically boils down to the best way I can formulate it is this. When I was reading this very closely, I was paying the first time through, I was paying close attention to see how it would impact our society because we say exclusively the old mass, right? Mm -hmm. And so um, with the bishop's permission. And so I was trying to figure out um, what parts of these actually apply to us. And I began to realize that, um, and I was very happy to see that a canonist pointed this, pointed this out, there are no provisions in this for private mass. 
Now, I do realize that even bishops have said all private masses are forbidden, but technically speaking, any restrictive document is to be, uh, be interpreted in the strictest possible manner. That's what canon law says. So in that particular case, there's nothing in here that has any provisions for uh, private mass. And so even these, uh, even doing the readings in English during private mass, um, there would be no reason to actually do them in private mass if the priest, you know. So, um, and I, one of the things that I was a little concerned about is that the practice that had been done in Europe, particularly in France, you saw this at certain times, is that um, when it came time for the readings, it would just turn around and then say, do the readings in the vernacular and not replicate them in Latin. That was my only concern that that would actually happen, but it doesn't have to. People can just do it in Latin and then do it in English. But there's no provisions in this document for private mass. And that's going to be a real question. Even though he says, you know, they're never, the, basically, the, he wants to cut off the seminarians from being able to say this mass. Does this just mean publicly or does this mean privately? I mean, there's going to be those kinds of questions. But um, I'm also a firm believer of don't ask them the question because they're going to say no. They can't say it. Whereas if it's left open, then technically speaking, there's no reason they can't. So this is something which I hope just kind of, uh, I, I, that's one of my real concerns is I just hope the traditionists, even the good bishops and stuff, let this thing settle. That's why I didn't get on right off the bat and start talking about it. Let this thing settle and see how it starts to plant, pay itself out. And then, um, you know, and I think that as time goes on, most bishops um, that are, you know, benign to the tradition, from what I can see, are just letting it stand. They're not, they're not even making any changes. Yeah, that's right. From where I'm at, it's been that way. Yeah. And there's a number of bishops that we've seen that have said actually a, a far larger majority uh, that at least that have made public statements that have said nothing's changing. Um, you know, yeah, this is going to be the same. Uh, you know, you see, uh, like we mentioned, we was mentioned Cordelione in, in San Francisco saying well, we're going to do more. Um, and then, you know, but there's been then been a handful um, that have come out and just killed everything off except for the fraternity, for example, or the Institute, or again, um, Bishop Gregory, citing this motu proprio explicitly canceled a pontifical mass being offered by another bishop at the Shrine of the Immaculate Conception, which is considered like the mother church of this country. It's a church that's generally considered at least morally to belong to every bishop of this country, not merely the, the one who's the, the ordinary. And uh, Wilton Gregory predictably because uh, we know where he's aligned, um, canceled this mass that had been in preparation for over a year, actually, um, and, and notified Bishop Gullickson, who was going to say, yeah, you can't do that. We're, we're canceling that. You can, of course, do the Novus Ordo in Latin if you want, but um, and then, then, which, of course, brings in other problems and issues, such as if you have a sacred music repertoire that you've prepared, um, that was written for the traditional mass. It was not written for the, the Novus Ordo, which has things that actually frustrate the whole purpose of the church's musical tradition. So, you know, is, is, so then it makes it, you know, extremely difficult, especially in choirs practiced in a certain way. So the whole thing shut down and little surprise. But the vast majority has been bishops, even in Europe too. France is another surprise because we know how liberal France can be. But at the same time, there's a lot of bishops that, you know, we saw everything that happened in Dijon weeks preceding this motu proprio. But there's been a number of other bishops saying, yeah, nothing's changing. It's going to be fine. 
And, and part of that, I think, is the French see the writing on the wall, that um, if pre priests that are ordained and you follow them up 10 years, the majority of them are all traditional priests that stay in the priesthood 10 years later after ordination. Right. But in D.C., you can give Joe Biden communion, though. Oh, of course. <laughs> <laughs> paragraph four is basically a bureaucratic paragraph. So to appoint a priest who has designated a delegate of the bishop is entrusted with the celebrations and with the pastoral care of these groups of the faithful. This priest should be suited for this responsibility, skilled in the use of the Missala Romanum, antecedent of the reform of 1970, possess a knowledge of the Latin language sufficient for a thorough comprehension of the rubrics and liturgical text, which when I first read that, I'm like, well, that's going to eliminate most dioceses because most dioceses, any guy that's in the bureaucratic machine or who might be put in charge of it is not going to have that thorough of a knowledge of Latin to begin with, let alone the liturgical uh, text. And I think that could be something that can happen. I think some, you know, some of the bishops will be responsible and, and actually put somebody in charge who knows the liturgy properly, et cetera, and knows Latin. But then I think there's going to be bishops who will just put some guy that happens to be in the chancery in charge of it, ignoring these requirements, and um, just say, you know, and put him in charge of it, and he's just going to basically be killing everything or telling him that, you know, to do things differently than they actually are supposed to be doing. The other uh, side of this is, is that a bishop can say that, well, I don't have a priest that's suitable for this. Therefore, you're going to have to wait before I'm going to give you permission to do the mass until I can find a priest uh, that can do this. And then they just sit on it indefinitely. Hmm. So I think that's one of the things that can be coming from that. And I think... Um... This kind of re recalls some things back to Sumorum Pontificum, where it said a priest who is suitable, idoneos in the Latin. And then in the Italian of this document, which is almost certainly the original, um, il sacerdote sia idoneo, the priest will be suitable. And that, that term, idoneos in Latin, which comes in, a, in Italian the same way, idoneo, refers to the minimum suitability. You have the mere ability to do the job. You know, it says, see, idoneo atale encarico, and that's where the English kind of loses it a little bit. It says, for such a responsibility, the Italian entale encarico means um, he, he's the, got the least minimum ability to do the job. Right. And so, and, and that's it kind of recalls back to the discussions about Sumorum Pontificum. Does the priest have to be fluent in Latin? Does the priest have to know the every single rubric that ever was? And then you saw bishops coming up who at the time in 2007 were rather hostile to the mass. And yeah, we're going to have a test and all this is like, are you going to have a test for your new right priest to follow the germ? Um, <laughs> and then that's kind of a, actually a similar thing reading this paragraph as, you know, back in those days. Um, okay, so they have to have all these, you know, the, the, the skills, and they have to know this, and they have to be, you know, proficient. Well, how many bishops are ensuring that the priests who say the 1970 missile, the Novus Ordo, as it were, know even the basics of what those rubrics require? Based on the right. majority of masses that the majority of Catholics go to, it would suggest they don't. Right. I think that's true. Make Vertigan Sapiencia great again? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. If there was ever a dead document, it was that one. I mean, yeah. it just dead letter. When it showed up, nobody paid right. any attention to it. But that also uh, shows, I think, here, we, we you can get a document from the Pope 
And what happens if nobody or or a majority of of people pay no attention to it? Does it become a dead letter? And if it becomes a dead letter, does it have to be followed? And the experience of Vitarium Sapiensia of John, uh, John the 20, St. John the 23rd would tell us, um, yeah, it can happen. And, uh, unless people want to be bound by Vitarium Sapiensia now and make all the universities teach their classes in Latin, uh, they're going to have to admit that if a document is not particularly heated, it doesn't actually have to be followed. Right. Paragraph five, to proceed suitably to verify that the parishes canonically erected for the benefit of the faithful are effective for their spiritual growth and to determine whether or not to retain them. This is kind of a loaded statement because in a certain sense, the bishop always has that. Uh, he's always has that because he can um, erect a parish and suppress a parish uh, in relationship to if he sees that it's not doing that. But it's interesting to proceed suitably to verify mm-hmm. that they are effective in their spiritual growth. Well, okay, what's the criteria for being effective in spiritual growth? Is it the tradition of the church? Or is it because a particular parish is being very uh, vocal in promoting um, you know, global warming and the need to cut down on our carbon emissions and this and that? I mean, what's going to be the criteria um, for that, I think, is a real question because, um, I, I mean, just you can see this with the bishops. They're not all on the same page of what constitutes real spiritual growth. So we'll have to kind of see how that one plays itself out. I also think that it's, um, this also gives, again, the bishops the excuse to just start suppressing personal parishes. Right. If they want, you know, if you have a, a bishop who didn't, he got he got stuck with it when he came in. He doesn't like it. He's been looking for an excuse to get rid of it. Well, now he's got the excuse. Mm-hmm. He can just say, well, it's not effective for their spiritual growth. Especially, especially considering the fact that <laughs> in the beginning of the document, we were basically, or in the, in the letter, we were basically that accompanied it. We were basically told that the trads are these angry people who, you know, are divisive. Well, if the bishop walks in with that attitude and et cetera, then he's going to say, well, they're obviously not spiritually growing here because they're not making their um, switch over to the new mass. So I think that this is something, this is something I'll be curious to watch how this is interpreted differently by different bishops. And then uh, also bishops in the future, namely that at least in this country, I can't speak for other countries, but since we have uh, all the world acolytes, cardinal world acolytes that are staffing like Supich and Tobin that are staffing the congregation for bishops and are going to be the ones determining <laughs> who the new bishops will be, it's almost a, a certainty they're going to be Francis effect bishops. And they're going to come in with that attitude that, yeah, the traditionals are divisive and mean and horrible and bad and prejudge, who am I to judge, right? Well, they've decided they're the ones to judge the spiritual lives of these people that have been in communion with Rome. And that's part of the, you know, again, going back to what what Robert Royal from the Catholic thing had said, the schizophrenia of this papacy, I'm going to take that further to the schizophrenia of this document. It's that Oh well, we, the the only reason we gave these things were to heal the uh, the issues of the SSPX, but now we're going to punish the people who are faithful to the church, and the way we look at it, because obviously the SSPX think they're faithful to the church too. So I, I don't want to get into those issues. But as far as Rome's concerned, the people who are faithful to the church that said we're going to go to your diocesan masses and we're going to go to those religious orders that have the faculties to offer the sacraments. And uh, we're going to punish them and call them divisive and, and quasi-schismatic. Yeah. And 
you know, and validate and justify everything the SSPX has been saying. It's like, which way is it? Uh, you know, are we yeah. trying to heal what you see as being this big problem in the SSPX, if that's the real problem? And again, that brings us back to what I said earlier, what you, uh, and you'd mentioned too, is that they just don't want this thing to exist at all, period. Right. And, uh, and that they're actually more offended by the fact that there are diocesan masses, by the fact that there are religious orders with the full faculties to say this mess, than they are about the SSPX, who at the very least are irregular, if nothing else. Yeah, and I think some of it also stems, if I understand it correctly, about the Italian bishops' involvement in encouraging Francis to do this, that, you know, there was a frustration on the side of the bishops that they couldn't control their priests in relationship to this thing, and so now it gives them the ability to just abs to actually do that. But I think, and that I think that's the, the irony of it is, is it's going to actually end up causing more division um, than it's going to, to solve when it's all said and done. Uh, paragraph six, to take care not to authorize the establishment of new groups. I guess you could just summarize this as saying, stop all progress. Because that's basically what, they don't want anything else, they don't want this thing moving forward at all. So um, to take care not to authorize the establishment of new groups, does this mean that if some group asks for the traditional mass, the bishops not to do it, apparently? Right. Which is, again, we gotta snuff the thing out. And uh, Colonel Mueller, who is not a traditionalist by any stretch of the imagination, uh, former head of the CDF, he said, quote, without the slightest empathy, one ignores the religious feelings of the often young participants in the masses according to the Missal of John the 23rd, that is the 62. Instead of appreciating the smell of the sheep, the shepherd here hits them hard with his crook. It also seems simply unjust to abolish celebrations of the old rite just because it attracts some problematic people. And that's from uh, Mueller's uh, article in the Catholic thing from some weeks back. But, you know, that, that first line really strikes me here is that he's uh, he can't appreciate the smell of the sheep and he just wants to smack them with the crook. You know, it, it, you know, it, we don't want you around. Get out of here. You know, until you start smelling the way we want you to smell. And, you know, what about the peripheries? What about diversity? What about dialogue, accompaniment? Agreement. Oh, God. Because right. it was never meant to mean anything except accommodating every single possible people except those who believe the Catholic faith. Really. Yeah, it's That's like I take. said on the, it's like I said on the rundown with your guys, the basic principle with a lot of these people is anything but Catholicism. Right. You can do, I mean, James Martin is a perfect example of that. The guy's running around spreading all sorts of, of um, disinformation, since that seems to be a buzzword these days, and yet nothing is ever done. He can do whatever he wants. Um, you know, there's certain, there's certain groups in the church who say a version of the Novus Ordo Mass that doesn't even follow the rubrics. It's literally a, a liturgy created out of thin air, and they get to do it. There's no problem with it. And etc. And so, whereas if you want to be faithful to a liturgy, etc., then they they seem to have a difficulty with it. Um, the next one is pretty 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 harsh, I think. Article four: Priests ordained after the publication of the present motu proprio who wish to celebrate using the Missale Romanum of 1962 should submit a formal request to the diocesan bishop, who shall consult the Apostolic See before granting this authorization which we know what that means they're just not going to grant it unless there's just extraordinary circumstances so um this essentially says that any guy 
that is now in the seminary is never going to get to say the old mass. That's basically what's being said here. And I think that's, um, it, when I read this, that's when I began to realize this document long-term isn't going to stand. Because um, in addition to that observation made towards the beginning where the priest might have a right, all right, GHT, I think that is a, an area that I hope a lot of the theologians start investigating. But long-term, the impetus of the um, the desires and the vocations of these men is very often inspired by the old right, even if they're in the new right, or they have a strong attraction to it. And it's not yet that you, uh, a, a single ecclesiastical document isn't going to stamp out these strong inclinations that these men have towards this ritual, you know, or their desire to write, to, to offer it or their, their love for it. It's not, it, that's not going to change just by a single ecclesiastical document. Um, even if they try and stamp it out, it's like anything else. The more you try and stamp it out, I, you know, I think the worse it's going to get. So I, I honestly believe that this, in the end, this document is actually going to foster more interest in the old right and, and actually a stronger adherence by those who go to it than an actual, okay, I, now I've got to change and I need to transition, since that seems to be a buzzword these days, I need to transition to the new mass. I, I think you're going to see even less of that happening. I actually know a couple of diocesan priests that are doing more in the traditional right and saying, yeah, you know, just since this thing came out, I just want to do it more. And it's not even a, a, a habit of disobedience. It's not even like, I mean, that, that that's the case with me. Government says, don't do this. I was like, oh, is there any reason why I shouldn't do that? Maybe that's what I should be doing. But um, for a lot of these priests, it's like it's only perked their interest and it perked their desire to you know to celebrate the traditional mass to celebrate the traditional sacraments and right. you know, and they've talked to the bishop they say yeah go ahead i don't care and so it's it's one of those things it's just going to keep growing and the idea that this yeah. is forbidden is again going to have that issue of calling into question everything that they want to be sacrosanct just as cardinal ratzinger pointed out all the way back in 1981 if what was formerly the most sacred thing is now forbidden it calls the very nature and existence of the church into question and marketing, yeah. there's no bad press. Yeah. <laughs> it just gets people no, I, interested. Yeah, I think it's just, I, yeah, I mean, I think that the more the, the I, I do think this, though, as they recognize that this document didn't have the full effect that they would like it to have, I think they're going to get even more draconian as it goes on. And Articles, people, six, articles five and six really lay that down. Yes, Absolutely. Uh, priests who celebrate according to the Missal Romano 1962 should request from the diocesan bishop the authorization to continue to enjoy this faculty. Again, it goes back to that word faculty. Um, the other side of it is too, though, is, is that uh, that's, this brings up a particular question. So this can only, I mean, I'm not a canonist, so I'm open to correction here, but it seems to me that this article, Article 5, can only apply to diocesan priests, to those who are, um, and maybe to New Right or in the new rite um, in their respective religious orders. But in the fraternity of St. Peter, I would imagine it's the same thing with the ICKs, although I could be wrong. But um, the fact of the matter is in the fraternity of St. Peter, it's part of their statutes, it's part of their constitution, this liturgical specificity. So it automatically grants the priests the right to do this um, and to, to actually save the old mass. And when, um, the, when the Rome tried to impose Concelebration or permission for concelebration 
you know, that you can't, you cannot say, um, or celebration of the new mass, you cannot, they, they said you cannot deny a priest the right to say the new mass, but they also basically conceded that if a priest doesn't want to say the new mass, he's not obligated to either. So in these particular um, congregations and religious orders, it doesn't seem to me that this would apply, except in cases of public mass, because obviously the, um, the to say the public mass in a diocese is the bishop's uh, prerogative to regulate. So that would be the only time that this would apply, but just for the for a priest who's part of a religious order to say his private mass in the old right, of, of which that's part of the statutes or constitutions, he would not um, he would not need this authorization, right? You know, by the way, that the the the, um, the next two articles six and seven, mm-hmm. um, if when you read that, I I I was actually told by a cardinal about two months before this motor appropriate came out that the Holy See was just about to divest the PCED Pontifical Commission Ecclesia Day of all its all its functions and authority, and that's essentially what happens. So institutes of consecrated life and society of apostolic life erected by the Pontifical Commission Ecclesia Day. So you're under Pontifical Commission Ecclesia Day and not the other ones. So historically, if your liturgical specificity was the old rite, if you did the new rite, then you were under the Institutes for Consecrated Rite and Societies of Apostolic Life. But now, he says, they fall under the competence of the Congregation for Institutes of Consecrated Life and Societies of Apostolic Life. So that's a shift. So now the fraternity of St. Peter is no longer under the Pontifical Commission Ecclesia Day. It's under the... Uh, Congregation for Institutes of Consecrated Life. So they've shifted that. That also means that any establishment of a society of which the old right might be part of it is now under the Congregation for the Institutes of Consecrated Life and Society of Apostolic Life. I can tell you, um, having studied those documents that come from that particular uh, congregation, um, no traditional order will ever become established from here on out if this document stands. The second thing is, is that not even new right groups uh, get get established um, because of the, the the requirements are so steep to to do that. But it also means that the internal governance of these societies um, can now be meddled with or affected by or adjudicated in relationship to this particular congregation. Then Article Seven, the Congregation for Divine Worship and Discipline of Sacraments, the Congregation for the Institutes of Consecrated Life and Society of Life, for matters of their particular competence, exercise the authority of the Holy See with respect to the observance of these provisions. So between these two, they have, so they've shifted now questions about the old mass. My, this is my understanding. I'm open to correction. But my understanding is if you have a question about something in the old mass, in the fraternity, we used to send them from time to time to the Pontifical uh, Commission Clays a Day. Um, in, the, in most of the rescripts were well-researched. They were actually very well done, um, at least that I can recall. Um, in, in, in those. And so we'd actually get um, adjudications about liturgical matters that were actually accurate and actually the way it should be done. That now we don't have, now it's under a completely different congregation. And so now we're going to have to see how that kind of works itself out um, in relationship to the liturgical life of these groups, their interior governance, um, their interior lives, you know, et cetera. Um, so we're going to have to see how that kind of plays out. But essentially speaking, I'm not even sure what the Pontifical Commission Ecclesia Day even does at this point. I'm sure there's something they do now, but I, I suspect that will all be given to someone else, and he's just going to close the office. Uh, okay, so Article Eight basically just puts into puts it into um, legalese about um, abrogating anything that's not part of this uh, motu proprio, and then the next one is um, that he's ordering it to all the parts to be observed, etc. One of the things I found interesting was, and, and many of the 
theologians have been talking about this. There's no vocatio legis in relationship to this document. It's just immediately put in effect. There's no ability to even study it, which means that, you know, it, it's going to be, the implementation, I think, is going to be haphazard at best. But the other thing I found interesting is, is that they, um, instead of issuing it in the official organ of promulgation, which is the uh, Act of Apostolic Societies, instead, what they did is, it's in the Observatory Romano, I think that was just to get it out there, get it as quickly as they can, but um, I find it interesting that they're not even using, I mean, they say later that it's to be published in the um, uh, Act of Apostolic Societies, but that's kind of an afterthought, I mean, in a sense, so the Novo Casio Legis, um, you know, there's no vacation of the law, so to speak, there's no uh, time period where there's going to be good. So I, I think that the the that I think that contributes to the kind of the draconian or harshness of the document that there's not even given time to study the document and you know make observations, etc. So I mean I could go on for hours on this and we've already gone quite a bit long. Brian, did you have anything else or um just kind of uh the way in which you don't have a vocatio legis is problematic, even even for this pontificate, because you're basically saying we don't want you to study it, we don't want you to do anything, we just want you to do this and be as vicious as we are about this whole thing right away. And and that's just that's just contrary to any Catholic notion of justice that's embodied in Catholic law and canon law in in any you know Catholic understanding of the notion of law. That you got to give people time to study and find the best ways to implement it. If the bishop really is the supreme legis legislator of his diocese, he needs to take stock of what's going on in his diocese, which may not be going on in another diocese, in order to how to best implement the law. So there's just a lack of justice in its proper sense, whatever, however we might feel about it. As Trav's like, oh no, he's attacking us. That's not the question of justice. The question of justice is for the bishop to say. How valid are these concerns in my diocese, and what are the actual spiritual needs of my faithful? And and if I go implement this immediately, am I looking out to the spiritual needs of my faithful? That's exactly what Francis is asking him to do, to completely ignore that. And you've had criticism from some bishops. You had a bishop in Holland uh, mentioning this, the liturgy is not the Pope's toy. You have another bishop, uh, Bishop uh, Tobin in Rhode Island, the good Tobin as he's called. Um, and he's not as he's not like the one in New Jersey, so he. Uh, but he said the Pope has basically taken a chainsaw to deal with a situation that requires a scalpel, and uh, and you see that that attitude reflected also in France, also in other places, where the you know it's like he's prejudged the situation, the spirit and uh, needs of many faithful who go to the traditional mass. He's he's prejudged it essentially. He's done exactly, you know, who am I to judge? Well, he's decided that he's the one to judge, essentially. And he's gone through to, to, and just said, nope, right now. And that speaks to something. It speaks to an urgency that's in the background. Now, people have floated different reasons for that urgency. One is that, well, the Pope just had this serious uh, colon, you know, uh, uh, surgery, had half his colon removed, and maybe there's a chance he's going to die. And, of course, we have no idea what's going to happen on the other side of the conclave. So in spite of the fact that, that Pope Francis has appointed most of the bishops that or cardinals that currently make up the cardinalate, nevertheless, there, there seems to be an urgency there by those who are advising the Holy Father and pushing him to issue this document because he's, not, he's only a few days out of the hospital and this comes right on out. Um, he's also been suspiciously quiet since it came out. And I'm just making a few things. Um, the, interestingly, the reading in the Novus Ordo 
for the very Sunday after this document came out, decried the shepherds who uh, deprived the faithful of his grace and ministry and, and lock away you know, for salvation from them. And I thought that was kind of interesting that that, that was the first reading in the Novus Ordo uh, to, to challenge in the Old Testament church, that is the, 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 the uh, synagogue in uh, Israel. But there's another factor I think that plays in as well, besides the, the, the question of the Pope's health and that particular urgency is that the Vatican's made a whole lot of strange bedfellows as it needs more money, as it has embarked on climate discussions on um, in the, the current uh, goings on of the unnamed virus of, of unspecified origin that you can't talk about uh, without getting banned from YouTube. And who is the one group that won't bend the knee, that won't roll up the sleeve, that as a group, not obviously not every single person in that group, what's the one group that has resisted the narrative, the zeitgeist, on the question of the unspecified virus of unspecified origin? It's trad Catholics. As, as almost, not, not quite to a man, but as a group, certainly. That's the group that is resisting. And when you look at your Bill Gates's, your Jeffrey Sachs, your uh, World Health Organization, all these groups, the World Economic Forum, all these groups with which, with whom the Vatican is partnered and receives funding from, it's not a stretch of the imagination to say, hey, you've got to do something about these traditional Catholics because they're not going along with what we want them doing. Yeah, that's been my observation too. Something stinks and it ain't the fish. There's some reason why all this timing was too coincidental for all of a sudden, this to come down on us. But hey, Father, before uh, a couple of questions. First, are there any loopholes? And maybe if we, if there are, maybe we shouldn't reveal them. And two, what can you give some people out there for the virtue of hope? To have some hope, what can they do right now to live through this so they're not, you know, their anxiety levels can go down some. Well, I think there's already been some of the guys have been discussing some of the loopholes. So my suggestion would be to, do, you know, to get, you know, to, to follow the guys that have actually, that are, you know, expert theologians and, and liturgists, et cetera, who've already been kind of talking a little bit about this, and canonists, because there was that one document that was actually put out by, uh, that was out in Morate Chaley on the, um, on canon law in relation by the canonists in relationship to this. And I thought that one was actually pretty good. So I think that people need to study this thing and then, realize where it binds and where it doesn't etc and what it restricts and what it doesn't restrict um as far as the virtue of hope goes um uh this is this is the exorcist coming out in me anytime you're attacked it means you're doing something right and this is this is exactly the same principle that i think is operative in the church when there's so many modernists and so many um, priests and bishops who actually have a distaste ultimately for Catholicism in the end. One bishop told me, this was like 20 years ago, one bishop told me, he said most of the bishops, he said, not most, he said many of the bishops at the USCC don't even believe the creed. This was 20 years ago. So the fact that we are being attacked and the, and the fact that the traditional mass is under attack is actually a sign of hope. It's a sign that we're doing the right thing. It's a sign we're doing a good thing. If if we weren't doing the right thing, things would be sailing along wonderfully. But that means, though, that as Ryan rightly pointed out in the beginning, we have to have a spiritual attitude towards this stuff. Yes, these things coming down appear. There, you know, there the justice is a real question here about this stuff. There is, uh, and there's obviously this is 
I mean, I, I mean, I'm not saying this for my own. I'm just saying many spirit, many commentators from the Catholic news sources and all these other have said that this is an attack on traditionalism, attack on traditionalists, attack on the old mass. But the fact that we have to remember is, is that that's a sign that we're doing the right thing. But God will not allow this to uh, to come to an end in the sense of he's not going to allow the traditional mass to be completely, completely stamped out. Might get a little bit more restrictive. It might be harder to find a traditional Latin mass, but it's not going to be completely done away. And there's one reason why. The theologians in the past said that the primary reason that God created man is that is in order to have rightly ordered worship. That's why He created us, so that we would worship Him in a rightly ordered way. Well, that's what the old mass is, and so it, He's not going to allow this thing to be stamped out. We just have to be willing to uh, to stay the course and realize. This is where our salvation is worked out in fear and trembling. This is where we're going to have to, the rubber's going to meet the road. We, we have to be willing to suffer and grind this thing out. And this is where we win our crown of glory in heaven is by, you know, fighting for what is right, fighting for what is just and good. And we just maintain it and don't allow ourselves to get sucked into the negativity of it. But, you know, this, as soon as this thing came out, I just said, okay, what do we got to do to keep moving this thing forward? Any final <laughs> words, Ryan? Uh, is largely a similar thing that God, I said it on the rundown a few weeks ago, God wants this mess, but he also needs better tracks. And so one, we know God wants this mess because look at where we were in the 1970s. Got a handful of people in various places in the world trying their best to make things work, trying their best to keep the mass going. Got a handful of priests here and there being persecuted by their diocese if they keep saying the mass. Um, you read Don Camillo and uh, the, the Flower Children is the title of the book. And Fiore um, Ragazzi, actually, I, th I thought it was one of his best books, um, Giovanni Goreschi, and where he's describing the life that Don Camillo has to after the council. And uh, he doesn't even know what's going on. He's still saying the masses. He's always said it. And then this priest shows up, not even wearing clerics. His name is Don Chichi. And, uh, you know, he shows all his, at first, Don Camillo just kicks him out. He doesn't believe he's a priest. And then he goes back and he shows all his documents and he's like, oh, okay, so you are a priest. And he's ordering him to do all these things on the authority of the new bishop to change the mass, to do this. Don Camillo doesn't want to do it, so he just goes to local chapel and keeps saying the mass. And everybody in the town is in his chapel with the mass. And it's only a few hippie children that are going to the new thing. Um, and that that's the situation a lot of people found themselves in 1969, in 1974. Um, and you look, go from there, even where I, we were 20 years ago when I entered the traditional movement, we, we're at the point where you know, you have priests all over the place saying the traditional mass. The religious orders are reinvigorating their traditional masses, the Dominicans, the Norbertines, the Carmelites. And you have, uh, you know, so much that that's happening on the side of tradition, so many new young people coming to it without the traditional umbrage that trads had because of basically being treated like lepers for so many years that that's going to breed certain types of results, right? And you got so many new people that just want the reverence and beauty of that mass. And so... That's a movement that's going to keep going. So God wants that, but he also wants better tracks. He wants people who are ready to really live the spiritual life and not just talk about it, not just talk about all these things and in, 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 um, uh, whine and complain about the Pope at coffee and donuts after Mass. He wants the people that are going to make a fervent act of thanksgiving after Mass. Just jump out and go do whatever you're going to do. He wants people that are going to take during their time, not just family rosary. Okay, I'm getting up in the morning. Am I looking at my phone to uh, check uh, whatever news that I don't need to be checking? 
or am I making, you know, a, a, a daily offering, a morning offering, or picking up the breviary, or picking up just basic things out of a prayer book in those very first hours of the day offered to God? Um, or am I getting on and getting on Twitter, getting on Fedbook, or getting on all these places and checking this? I think those are the questions you need to be asking. Are you really ready to be a trad, to be a better trad? Or are you willing to say, I just want my trad warm and fuzzy on Sunday and go back and I just want everything to be nice and peaceful. That's really where we're at. And the fact that this document comes out, I think it shows that we're getting to the, the place, just like Father said, it's coming because we're doing something. And all the players that are applauding this document or all the people that we've noted for years do not exhibit that they have Catholic faith. Right? Or they whatever faith they have is not ours. And so it, it's, it's a good sign, I think, as well as getting rid of legal fictions, I think it's the silver lining too, is that the whole problem of ordinary form and extraordinary form is really problematic because they're really not part of the same right. And now that's been wiped away for good, I think. Well, maybe not for good, but at least for the moment, I think it really says the reform of the reform is dead. We're going to have tradition or we're going to have Father Billy Bob masses. And, um, you know, I think that's that, that's <laughs> where Billy Bob. It's, it's, we can take stock in that. And embrace that, you know, God is setting up, I think, you know, a great victory for us in the future. And we just need to preserve, like St. John Capistrano uh, and St. Bernardino of Siena in the 15th century, trying to reform the church, they're trying to reform the Franciscan order, trying to lead the popes to be less worldly, trying to bring in all these reforms. None of it's taking. So they got some moderate reform in the Franciscan order. The rest of it, none of it's really taking. Until 130 years after they were dead. Maybe we're somewhere along that line, hopefully closer rather than further. They didn't know that. They just knew they worked for reforms and it wasn't happening yet. And they just trusted that their, you know, their successors would keep that work going. So 120 years after they were in the ground, that you're even seeing the fruits of Trent. And probably even more than that when you count how long it took to reform the Roman Curia and such. So it you know, you may be in it for the long haul. You may not see it in your lifetime. But what matters is, are you faithful? Not are you every day, Vatican, do this, new mass, this, and granted, somebody needs to talk about those things or write about those things. Why are you the one who needs to write about those things? I'm not. I, I try to stay away from those things uh, because I need to get myself to heaven. And so look at where you're at and look at what your response has been. Are you becoming a better Catholic? in response to this document, or are you becoming a worse Catholic in response to this document? And I think that's the question you need to ask with a really serious spiritual introspection. And 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 that's that's kind of my you know parting words on that is that the man the enemy is in the mirror, not necessarily somebody over in Rome. That's the enemy. You've got to get to heaven. Whatever, but whatever they do, you need to stand before God. Yeah that whole Philip Neri thing. Yeah. Keep an yeah. eye on Philip. He's gonna betray you. Yep. Hey, hey, Steve, can I just make one last comment based on what Ryan said? And I promise not to be as long-winded as Ryan. So, uh, but it's kind of hard. <laughs> historically, they always said that the longer a liturgical part of the Mass was part of the rite, the more it was indicated, indicates that that's God's will that it be there. So in relationship to the old rite, we know that the essential structure of this thing has not changed for 14 or 1500 years and even longer. So but that tells us is that we know that this thing is the will of God. We know it because he's had it around for so long. And if he didn't, if he wanted, wanted what we're going through now, he would have brought this about a long time ago, but he didn't. Okay, so this indicates what we, what he wants. Now, one last other thing to put together with that. 
we just read, you know, the whole thing with uh, on the Feast of St. Martha, where St. Martha says to Christ, can you tell Mary to come help me? And he says to her something very important, which trads have to keep in mind, and that's this. That she has chosen, Mary, has chosen the greater part, uh, and it will not be taken from her. If we are worthy of the traditional Mass by being holy, God will not take it from us. He might make it difficult, but he's not going to take it from us. So our job is to be worthy of the Mass. You know, some book is the bestseller list, I think, like uh, Acts 5, 39, something about uh, if it's of God, you would not be able to stop them. You might be even fighting against them. Uh, right. And the, the lines are now, on the good side, the lines are cl crystal clear. There's no gray matter anymore, right? Right. Anyway, well, gentlemen, thank you for that. Uh, we'll do Quo Premium another day, just so it's uh, keep it under five hours. <laughs> okay. Father, yeah. can you give us a, give everyone a blessing before we uh, sign off? Sure. And this is intended for anybody who listens to this podcast. Benedictio de omnipotentis patris et filiates superficiens superbos et manet semper. Amen. Thank you, Steve. Thank you, uh, Ryan. Good night. Thank you. Good night.